If you have uh, your copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to turn uh, to chapter, or Luke chapter 22. Uh, if you don't have a copy, you can follow along uh, in your bulletin uh, or on the screens uh, provided as well. Uh, I can remember as a kid uh, going on from time to time road trips uh, with my dad. Uh, I don't remember all the details about the trips, but I, I do remember feeling close to my dad, the closeness that comes between uh, a father and a son when they have uh, shared experiences. So I've, of course, tried to do uh, the same thing with my boys. Uh, we've gone on camping trips over the time, and uh, the retelling of the stories uh, on those camping trips uh, seems to get bigger and bigger each year. Uh, but I certainly hope that uh, in the process of that shared experience, uh, my boys feel a closeness uh, with their father as well. Well, if you've been with us throughout uh, the season, you'll know that we have been looking at the closeness in relationship uh, between God the Father and God the Son during this particular uh, Lenten season. And so uh, what I experienced with my dad, what I hope my boys experience with me, we all recognize is just a, a shadow of the deep uh, closeness and oneness of relationship that we see between God the Father and God the Son. They experienced a, a unity of relationship from eternity past, and they'll experience a, a unity of relationship uh, that will exist in eternity future, a unique relationship. But here, this week, as we look at Jesus' last week on earth, we read about a very unique chapter in the relationship between the Father and Son. We see a little bit about it today. And, of course, we'll see it especially uh, in Good Friday as we meditate on the crucifixion. This morning, I'd like to read from Luke chapter 22, uh, and I'll be reading uh, from verses 39 to 46. This is God's Word. And he, speaking of Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your words. We're thankful that they come with the power of your spirit. So we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you as we encounter you in your scripture. We commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we all know that this is Jesus's final week. Uh, the week began with a certain measure of irony uh, on Palm Sunday where Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, but he enters into all sorts of celebration. And many of those who were celebrating Christ as he entered into Jerusalem believed that he was a coming king 
who is now approaching the city to finally establish his throne. And of course, they were celebrating probably because they wanted a place in that kingdom. They wanted to celebrate this king as he's about to ascend to the throne, and they want a significant part in that kingdom. But of course, what we all know is that they misunderstood what kind of king Jesus came to be. And of course, when they realized it later in the week, they eventually wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus at all. By the time Thursday rolled around, the plans had been set. Judas had made his deal with the Jewish authorities, and Jesus would be arrested by those authorities in cooperation with the Romans. And Jesus, of course, knowing all this, wanted to celebrate a one final Passover meal with his disciples. And at that meal, he even refashions the elements of that meal, saying that the the bread that was broken was a symbol of his body that was about to be broken. The wine that they shared with one another would be a symbol of his blood that was about to be shed. And of course, our passage picks up after dinner when Jesus and his disciples go out to the Mount of Olives to pray. We know that this was a pretty common spot for Jesus to go with his disciples and to pray in the evening. We know it's common because Judas knew it was common. Judas knew that if he wanted to arrest Jesus, that's the place it would be. It would be in secret. No one would see it, but Jesus was always there. It was his practice to be there with his disciples. So later, Judas arrives with soldiers to arrest Jesus in this very garden. But just before his arrest, we see this narrative that we just read, which is actually told by three different gospel writers telling different nuances of this story. But all the gospel writers help us to see really two very simple things. They help us to see the faithfulness of Jesus in this very intimate and climactic moment. But they also help us to see the frailty of his disciples who are with him there in that moment as well. So let's first look at the faithfulness of Jesus in this climactic moment. As the passage opens up, we see that Jesus is clearly in distress as he is praying in the garden. Verse 43 says that Jesus is in agony. So much so, and this was unique to Luke's account, so much so that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now I want us to take a moment to just pause and consider what we're witnessing here in this story. We're witnessing Jesus, the Son of God, who is remarkably sorrowful. He isn't stoic, He's extremely emotional. And and Jesus' own words to his disciples are this, that his soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. The gospel writer Mark tells us that he began to be greatly distressed and sorrowful. Now, you and I all know what it's like to feel sorrowful, to to be in such distress that that it even physically affects us. It even physically affects our own health. We all have been there before, but here we observe this in our Savior. We observe it in the Son of God. Now, theologians have kind of argued and speculated about this passage for centuries. 
And they argue about this thing called the messianic consciousness of Jesus. And they ask a lot of really good questions like, how much did Jesus really know about what he was facing in this moment? As God, did he know exactly what was about to happen? And if so, did that knowledge make his distress even more difficult? You see, for you and I, our sorrows often are circumstantial and they often come on us very suddenly. But did Jesus know exactly what the road looked like that was ahead of him? In the end, we don't really know the ins and the outs of that. And that will especially hold true as Jesus marches onto the cross. But here is what I am pretty sure about when it comes to what Jesus knew and understood. Because Jesus, as a very good Jewish boy at one point in his life, would have memorized, known to heart, Isaiah 53, that says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to the grief. You see, Jesus, in some ways, had to know that he was the lamb about to be led to the slaughter. He knew that the Lord was about to crush him, and so, because of all that, he was remarkably sorrowful. But with his sorrow, he did what you and I should always do when we experience sorrows. He prayed. He went before the Father and he prayed. Jesus takes his pain, his acute sorrowful pain that he's feeling, and he takes it to the Father. And in his prayer, we don't just see his sorrow, which is clearly on display, but what we also see, which is remarkable, we also see his submission to the Father. You see, despite having memorized Isaiah 53 and knowing the will of the Father, he prays this in verse 42. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It appears, if you compare all the gospel narratives, it appears that Jesus even asks the Father three times if it is possible that this cup will pass. Now that image of the cup is one that's taken from the Old Testament, and it is an image, it's a picture of the divine wrath and anger of God towards sin. There's this incredibly haunting verse in in Psalm 75 that says this, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. And so what this passage shows us is that Jesus, the righteous one, was being asked to drink that cup down to the dregs. He was about to be numbered among the wicked. And so Jesus asked the Father three times if this cup can be removed, and the answer he gets from God, his Father, is no. Now you know that I have four kids, and so my kids ask my wife and I for a lot of things all the time. 
Uh, A lot of times they ask more than just three times. They're pretty good at pestering from time to time. And often the answer is what? It is no. Sometimes the kids even come to us, what's the point of even asking you, mom and dad? We know that you're just going to say no. And we say, all right, if you're not going to ask, you're not going to ask. And so what we see here, I think, is really significant. We see the divine son asking something of the father and receiving the answer, no. And yet, even in the request, you see something significant. Even in the request, we see that Jesus' deepest desire, the deepest desire of the Son, is to be in lockstep with the Father. You see, you and I, just like Jesus, have all sorts of desires that are going on all the time. Some of those are stronger desires, and some of those are weaker desires. And so I'm sure in Jesus, he had a desire not to suffer. That is why he's asking the Father that very thing. But Jesus' greatest desire was to honor the Father and to live according to the will of his Father. And so what you see here is that that desire, the strongest desire in Jesus' heart, is the desire that wins out in this moment. You see, Jesus was cognizant of the impending and agonizing death that lay ahead, and yet he embraced it because his strongest desire was to please his Father. And so it reminds us that Jesus didn't have some cosmic death wish, or he wasn't some sort of masochist. This is, as Green states, one commentator states, a fundamental orientation around the will of God for his life. And what we see later on is that Jesus is faithful to the Father in the work of redemption. He certainly is sorrowful. We see that. But at the end, what is on display is that he is submissive to the will of God the Father. Now, his disciples, that's a different story. (laughs) Because what you see in this passage is not only the faithfulness of a Savior, but you also see the frailty of his followers. Jesus is praying in earnest in this moment. He, of course, is obviously in distress. But what are his disciples doing? They've found a little corner and they're sleeping. They can't simply keep their eyes open in this moment. They should have been praying right along with Jesus, of course. That's what he asked them to do. They should have been orienting their desires around the will of God, just as Jesus was. They should have even been attending to Jesus, who was obviously in incredible distress in that moment. But what are they doing? They are asleep. Instead, they have fallen asleep. And I have to think this adds in some ways to Jesus' profound loneliness, even in this moment. There was a poet named uh, Frederick Knowles who wrote a, a poem about the Garden of Gethsemane. It's called Grief and Joy. And he writes one little stanza that says, that captures this well. Joy is a partnership, but grief weeps alone. Many guests had Cana, Gethsemane had only one. You see, what I think is a a contrast here is the fundamental, earnest strength of Jesus Christ the Savior and the frail sleepiness of his disciples in response. And yet, what's so remarkable about the gospel story is despite their frailty, what does Jesus do? He still dies for them. And he dies for you and I 
as well. He knows that you and I are just like those frail disciples. He knows that our desires get all sorts of disordered and disoriented. He knows that our bodies are weak. He knows that even worse, our souls are not just weak, but they have become spiritually dead, and that is exactly why he came. It's exactly why, moments later, the God of the universe would allow his hands to be bound by common soldiers. It's why the God of the universe would allow his own creation to beat him, to mock him, and to spit upon him. It's why he would allow common officials to stretch out his hands and nail them to the cross. The very hands that created the universe would be stretched out on a cross. It was the will of God to crush him so that you and I could experience life and forgiveness and grace. You see, friends, the Lenten season is the time to recenter ourselves on the story of the gospel. And it's no surprise that it happens during the spring season. I don't know about you, but every time during the spring season, I get this little itch to get out in the garden to either plant some flowers or to plant some vegetables to get my hands dirty in the garden. And if you ever go to the scriptures, I don't know if you've noticed this before, if you ever go to the scriptures, the garden theme carries all throughout the scriptures. What we realize when you first open the scriptures is what? God begins with a garden. It's a garden called the Garden of Eden. It's paradise. Nothing has gone wrong at this point. Everyone is in a blissful state of joy with God and joy with one another. And then just it seems moments later, everything goes wrong. And God's people are exiled from that garden, from that paradise. We have become estranged from God the Father. And then if you fast forward all the way to the end of the scriptures, what do you see? You see another garden. You see New Jerusalem, this heavenly city that becomes the destiny of God's people. And what's in the center of it? A garden, another garden, an even better garden than the Garden of Eden. And so the question becomes, how does God make right what went wrong in that first garden? Or a better question, how do we as sinners make it into the garden in that heavenly city? Well, what the gospel tells us is this. We can experience the heavenly garden, because Jesus persevered and endured through this garden, the garden of Gethsemane. You see, Jesus persevered and endured because of the humble submission to the Father's will. But I think there's even another reason Jesus persevered through this garden of Gethsemane. There was something more in him than just grinning and bearing it. And Hebrews 12 tells us exactly what it was. It tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. You see, friends, it was joy that made Jesus walk down this road. It was joy in seeing the plan of redemption accomplished It was joy in making your salvation and my salvation possible. You see, because of great love for you and joy in a restored relationship with you, Christ endured the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath because of his great love for you. 
and the joy of being in relationship with you. You see, friends, sin entered the world through the garden. Redemption came as Jesus left that garden. Let's pray.